Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Waiting List Podcast. Our guest today is Ming Tian, the founder of Ming Watches. For those that have been listening to us for a while, you know we have many watch CEOs on and founders, but I don't think I've been excited for a while now. Not because Ming's Malaysian or anything like that, but I've just been fascinated with people who started off their careers in one direction and then they end up in a completely different field. And then when you look back, it kind of feels like all these choices suddenly make sense. So to begin, I'm going to give a brief background about Ming's journey. And Ming, like, do correct me if I get it wrong. Okay. Um, you graduated from Oxford at 16. You were yeah. studying to be a physicist. You ended up in the M&A private equity like industry. Then you Good landed thing. a role as a um, senior executive director at McDonald's and guilty (laughs) yeah and while this like this whole time you were still very passionate about photography and doing it as a part-time job but like I mean when I was reading it I was like it just sounds like a full-time job honestly um yeah it was it was yeah so my first question um is actually I personally consider you a creative through and through but do you agree you are more creative than logical and does it surprise people who you previously worked with in your older career that you're actually this creative? Uh, I think I'm both. I think I'm equal parts both, to be honest with you. The the thing is, for me, um, the watch thing started off when I was at university. So I was I was trying to um, looking for something to uh, spend my summer internship money on, and I uh, thought I'd buy myself a nice watch. So I, I went down the rabbit hole and then started discovering that all the things that were really interesting um, were far, far out of my price range, right? And um, I, this must have been around 2001, 2002 kind of time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to put to put things into context, I know it sounds, seems like an age ago, especially for, for some of the, the newer collectors out there. I mean, this was a time when there was like the purists, what you seek and time zone, and that was pretty much it. And during those days, you know, the the most common debate was, do I buy a do I buy a secondhand Speedmaster or do I buy a secondhand sub for fifteen hundred dollars? <laughs> yeah, fifteen hundred dollars. Okay. Can you imagine? Um, I remember so those days. You do? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> how many How many regrets? <laughs> That's a question. Yeah. Uh, but, it was, um, it was uh, regret after regret, lesson not learned after lesson not learned. Well, I mean. I don't think we're going to go back to that anytime soon. I just don't think it's possible. But, uh, you know, it was interesting because th- those were the times when you know, we got to play with really exotic stuff. And I remember going to um, a purist meet in London at um, somebody's house. And, and then the the host announced he just bought this new watch. And it was by some guy we'd never heard of called Philippe Dufour. Oh, God. And it had two balance wheels. Yeah. And, and we thought he was crazy for paying... 25,000 pounds for a time only thing. If only we knew, huh? Yeah. But oh. to answer your question, the, the creative part, I think, started, um, it's not a long time ago, but to me, the natural progression was like, okay, look, I can't afford this stuff. So, you know, maybe I'll start scribbling and designing things and um, seeing what could be interesting in that sense. And I think people were more surprised to learn that when we released the first watch in 2017, it wasn't the first thing I designed. It was probably, I don't know, watch number 50 or 60 by that point. Mm-hmm. Um, arguably, a lot of the early stuff didn't work. Aesthetics, I think, you know, matured over time, and I sort of developed my own style through that that preceding period of, you know, the 15 years. I 
Um, I did some design work for some of the other big brands. I did um, a lot of photography work. So I, again, around the same time, the, the early 2000s was when I, I realized that one of the ways I could, I could experience a watch and, and make it something that's a little bit more personal was to through photographing. And I was very lucky because a lot of generous friends who let me photograph their pieces. Mm-hmm. And um, this caught the attention of, of the brands and I was, I was shooting for them as, as well throughout. Uh, 2011, I think was, um, you know, the end of corporate for me. And that was the point at which I, I went photography full time. Um, mm-hmm. Of course it was, it was shooting watches. Uh, I think that's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's no surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, uh, it, it was an interesting experience because all those things that you used to see, you know, once in a blue moon, right? Suddenly you get a whole tray full of them. And it's like, we need front side back soldier shot, all that kind of thing. And yeah, it, it quickly, yeah. you know, after a few years of doing that, it was like, I got a little bit jaded. So there was a hiatus, uh, of a few years where I didn't really do anything in the watch space. I wasn't collecting. I wasn't, I wasn't really paying much attention to it because I think part of it was, um, I think that was the first big jump in, in accessibility, uh, mm-hmm. you know, post 2008 when, okay, financial markets crashed, but then quickly afterwards, I think things started to recover and people going crazy with the kind of, the kind of prices and, and pieces they're putting out. Um, and it really, it really started for me when there was, there was a, there was an event that, that four of us went to um, and, you know, we, didn't quite like what was on offer. We didn't quite like the experience of it and thought, maybe, well, maybe very naively, maybe we could do something a little different and something that that we would like. So mm-hmm. the the underlying, um, I guess the underlying principle for us has always been we, we make watches we like, and it's, it's really been nothing more and nothing less than that. Uh, but oh. like, okay, I, will, so, I will also yeah. say the creative part has, has been pushed mm-hmm. thoroughly along the way because it's not just, okay, aesthetically things look good. You know, you can, when you don't have a production constraint, you can basically say, I'm going to make it look like anything I want to make it look like. And I, you know, I can think of all sorts of crazy stuff. And then production reality hits and you go, well, okay, that's not feasible. That's not possible for production. That's too expensive. Um, you know, there's only one supply doing it. Wait time's too long. It's an experimental technology. Blah, blah, blah. You know, we, it, it didn't deter us and we kept doing it. But at the same time, it was something that I think, I wouldn't say tempered the creativity, but, Maybe maybe I'll phrase the answer in a different way. The most yeah. difficult things I, I I find from a design perspective are actually the entry level pieces, because we yeah. have a lot more constraints. Yeah, a lot more yeah. constraints. But the expectation is is still that, you know, we're going to make something at a certain complexity, a certain level, certain whatever it is, and we have to try and put some of that magic into it, despite you know, honestly being at a production budget where we look and go, mm, do I really need? Mm-hmm six screws on the case back can I get away with four it's it's yeah. that kind of thing yeah Dan so I'm still I'm sitting here listening to this uh brilliant articulation of uh creativity and uh you know how your career path and I'm still stuck on the fact you graduated from Oxford at 16 years old am I, am I the only person am I the only person I'm, I swear like listeners must be screaming at me and going Hang on, how could you just let that slip? I mean, are you guys graduating at 16 at Oxford? No, like, first of all, like, how did I that ever it, happen? Yeah. How no, did that happen? Was that due to Asian it's, parents? Yeah, or like, yeah I mean, uh, maybe part of it was Asian parent thing. Part of it was just wrong place, wrong time, you know. Wrong place, um, wrong time? Why'd you yeah, say it like exactly. that? Yeah, exactly. Wrong place, wrong time. I wouldn't do it again. 
but we both had asian parents look at me and dan like what happened well hang on a minute you guys are doing this fine i thought i was a bit of a genius with 15 gcses but then like wow ming and he's like graduating from oxford while i'm i didn't know 15 like wetting my nappy like uh, (laughs) so 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 i was just thinking like what happened there because i was listening to long long she's saying you graduated as a physicist and uh, now, you know, you're, you became a full-time photographer. Now you have your own brand. Uh, yeah. How no, was Dan, that? Okay. Can I just say that I'm like downplaying the amount of stuff he's balancing because it just sounds stupid. At this point, it just sounds like I'm like, I'm yeah, sucking right. to him. <laughs> but when I read it, I was like, okay, there's like six things going on. And I yeah. actually sat there and I calculated like how many hours in a day, like what is he doing? Um, and then it was actually one of my questions. Like, what does your actual day look like? It's not as crazy as it used to be, believe it or not. So it, during the photography days, I um, I ran a, a fairly large photography site. I think mm. according to uh, Alexa at one point, I was the 10th largest photography site in the world. Yeah. I was doing that single-handedly. Um, I put out an article a day. I mean, these are long-form articles, right? It's not, it's yeah. not like a hundred-word thing. Um, so these are these long-form philosophical articles, images, everything else. Um, I was teaching, I was shooting commercially. Um, I was on the board of advisors for DJI. I was chief of strategy yeah. at Hasselblad. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that, that was crazy. I mean, honestly, that was literally from the time you wake up to the time you go to sleep, you're, you're flat out mm-hmm. and, and you sleep like mm-hmm. five hours a night kind of thing. Now it's, it's not so bad. I mean, I, I have time, I have time to have breakfast with my wife. I've got time to go and mm-hmm. you know read the news, which honestly is kind of depressing these days. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got time to go and, I would say do tangential research. So, you know, arcing back to the creativity thing, there is, I think it's actually the ability to put very disparate stuff together. Mm -hmm. So we have, um, you've got direct sort of derivative stuff where, you know, it's, it's, you see another watch, you get an idea and then it's, it's a, it's a riff off that. But we, you know, I try not to do that because it's, it's very easy to fall down the same trap that, that a lot of other brands are doing. And then you make something that honestly is not that interesting because it's been seen before. Um, you know, I, I tend to look outside that. I look at, uh, I look at architecture, I look at product design, mm-hmm. um, you know, I look at painting, you know, of late, I've been looking at a lot of uh, the older Japanese woodblock prints and stuff like that and how they, how they represent texture in two dimension, because obviously we don't have three dimensions to work with on a dial most of the time. So it's kind of interesting how they, how they play with layering for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of this stuff is not, you'll never see it for me. You'll never see a direct translation where it's like, oh, you know, we put a Hokusai on the dial because I think that's kind of, that that's kind of been done and it's, it's very derivative, but um I would say a lot of things swim around subconsciously for a while. Mm-hmm. It used to bother me that we couldn't produce a new interesting design on demand kind of thing, but I've, I've sort of learned to trust the process of the last few years. And, you know, there'll be periods where three months I don't design anything. And then one week we'll do 10 things at once. You know, mm-hmm. we have, um, we have a design board in the office that's uh, eight feet high and 30 feet long. And it's, it's covered in a four plan views of all the stuff we, we haven't produced yet. So we, we've got to work for you. I I'd like to think it's not, but then again, yeah. you know, <laughs> I don't know. You have to ask the team that one. Dan. I think it's a very interesting point you raise and how you get inspiration from design, because as you were saying the answer, I was thinking about, you know, the Nautilus, the Royal Oak, they were inspired by designs that aren't actually like previous watches. You know, you've got the right. porthole, 
And then you've got like Cartier, when you read the book, the Cartier, he was just looking up at like the architecture and thinking, oh, how can I incorporate this into what, you know, we, famously the, the tank is based off mm -hmm. a tank, you know, mm -hmm. nothing to do with watches. So maybe that's a little hint to maybe watch brands out there that whoever's listening, instead of like just copying the next brand, watch brand for design, yeah, or taking this part and that part from watch brand, putting it together, maybe they should be outward looking at what surrounds us in the environment, right? They're trying, they can't do it. <laughs> I think well, Richard I mean, like, the, the, like there are three they're like three thoughts of, <laughs> Well, they used an Airbus window at one point. That was kind of interesting. <laughs> I mean, there, there are three <laughs> thoughts that fall out of that. One is immediately there's so many brands that have tried to do an automotive inspired watch, and I think it's like literally we translate some part of a car and make it look like a watch case. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that works. I think there's there's something in the lines and proportions that's definitely there, and the way surfaces are used. Um, the way lines intersect, but I, I don't think anybody's done it right yet. And I think I know why, because it's really not easy. You know, I, I've I've tried doing this at least 20 times and we've, we're still not mm -hmm. at something we're happy to produce yet. Um, I think part of that is because you've got, you know, there's a different scale for a start. There's, there's different mm -hmm. techniques involved. There's different production manufacturing stuff involved. Um, there's also, I think you need to have a designer who's like willing to just sit and hack at it. And a company's mm -hmm. willing to pay for that because you can't take the first or second or third or fourth or fifth design. It, it's not going to be ready. I mean, I, I won't be surprised if we go through another 20 iterations before we, before we sign off on something. Um, it's, it's a very, it's a very non um, systematic approach. So mm -hmm. the rationality doesn't come into it there. You know, it doesn't mean there's no rationality at all in, in all of this process, but the rationality in the design part, at least in the conceptualization part, certainly, um, I think you have to suspend that for a bit and then come back to it later when it starts to trans when you start to translate that into into production. But how do but that begs the question though? When do you say yeah? yeah when do you say finished? I, yeah, like one. Yeah, can I just add on to that? Because I'm still trying to understand like how does someone sit there and go to work and tell themselves like today I'm gonna design this watch and you're just sitting there is there like a process like you walk around or you go for a smoke and then you're like oh and then you know you run back into the coffee. room and you draw it copious <laughs> yeah. amounts of coffee both i mean coffee yeah, the, yeah. The, everything runs in coffee um it's not that simple i think in the early days when we didn't have a catalog and we didn't have a concrete design language it was sort of we try everything uh you know, there's all these ideas and certain elements you try and put into one thing. And sometimes you try and put too many ingredients in it. It's like cooking, but you use every spice, right? It's going to turn out horrible. So I, as, as we went along further, I learned that I think the more restraint you can exercise, the more you can sharpen each individual element. And you don't really need more than two or three elements, anything more than that. And, mm -hmm. and, and it becomes very confusing. It becomes very um, unfocused in that sense. Uh, the actual design process, and you know, early on it was we have to design this because it's model number one and it has to represent certain things. You know, it mm -hmm. had to be a, a daily wear. It had to be, you know, to a certain price point. It had to have certain characteristics. Um, you know, aesthetically, I think it had to be sort of representative of of where we would take the brand overall. Perhaps, mm -hmm. you know, not in an absolute sense, but at least to set a good to set a good brownstone. Um, mm -hmm. Now it's a little bit different because we have so many things that are. are ready to go or at least what i would consider mature from a design point uh 
I will design and, you know, we have that big board and we basically select what goes next, depending mm -hmm. on, you know, both where the market is, what we launched previously. Um, we try not to, you know, we try not to launch too many of the same category of watch in a row. Yeah. Um, you know, and then it means that along the way things will get shelf maybe for two or three years. And mm -hmm. when, when it comes time to do that, we come back to, we update it with the latest design language and, and things like that, but it's not, it's not a major rework. And mm -hmm. I think ready is when it's sat on the board for a good three to six months and we don't look at it and go, I would like to change that element or this thing sticks out or it's not, it's not good, you know? And I think the reason why we can't say go immediately um, mm -hmm. kind of comes back to, to the point you made before about the Royal Oak and, and uh, the tank and things like that. And th those, that was something that um, the other point I wanted to make earlier, if a design is too comfortable initially and it's like, okay, that looks good. Mm -hmm. There is a risk that actually it's going to become boring by the time you produce it, because from the time we finish the design work to the time we see first prototypes is usually, you know, 12 to 18 months. By the okay. time we're delivering them, it's 24 to 36. Okay. That's the kind of lead times we're working with. So honestly, by the time I see the physical watch, it's, it's old for me because I'm already mm -hmm. working several generations ahead, right? We, um, we're now launching and delivering design language three stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's third generation. Um, mm -hmm. I'm working on sixth generation. And the further mm -hmm. out you get, the more you have to push, but at the same time, keep your familiar elements. Uh, and I think the further you push, the more unfamiliar things get, the more uncomfortable people get with, mm -hmm. with the way the design looks. And that discomfort, I think is part of the process. And I, I think yeah. if, if the team is, uh, a little bit uncomfortable, that's fine because it takes you some time to sort of look at it. Even though you see these things every day, it takes you some time mm -hmm. to look at it, get used to it and go, okay, I can see myself wearing that. I can see why it makes sense, you know? And that mm -hmm. the question of ready is a very, is a very nebulous one because there, there mm -hmm. are things where we go, it's just, it's just never going to be ready because either the technology for, to produce it is not mature or something like, you know, it doesn't fit with, with the current lineup. Dan? It sounds like I'm hearing Max Pusa, but an Asian version. The way you describe it, it sounds like because he he comes out with all these crazy designs as well. Although you know, admittedly, yeah. it's a different type of version of you, a bit version okay. of a watch. But like he's, he, you know, I remember hearing him saying, "I've got like all these things bubbling away, blah blah blah." You know. Yeah. But um, wait, but actually, I actually we're working on something together. Know. By the way, I just oh, thought I'd drop are? that in. We are. Yeah. Oh. Are we the first to find out? Probably not, but no, because can I just say, because I read about you in that book, 32 Regrets, and the the biggest difference between you and Max is Max, according to him, goes and sits like in a chair in his backyard like every other week and just sits there for an hour thinking. And he really prioritizes like quiet time and thinking, and that's how he gets creative. But um, from what I believe, like you're more the type that's like, you know, I'm going to read every single piece of information out there. I'm going to like just absorb as much as possible. And then for some reason, your brain just puts it together. So I actually- I'm a little more chaotic. Yeah, I need the input. I'm a little yeah. bit more chaotic when it comes to that kind of thing. Sometimes yeah. the ideas come uh, when you don't expect it. I mean, sometimes the ideas come when you're like, I don't know, I might be doing laps in the pool and then suddenly you think about something. It's, it's like that. Mm -hmm. It's not, I can't sit there and say, okay, today I'm going to think of this because inevitably- it doesn't work for me. I mean, pe different people work in, in different ways. 
Okay. I, I have a question. Yeah. Right. So like it's design in a watch is obviously very critical in the purchase decision or liking a watch, but also the brand is as well. So you went, I think, very courageously put your name on it. You know, Ming, you were very like vocal. Well, not vocal, but you didn't hide the fact. Uh, that it's not courageous. That wasn't courageous at all. I mean, all that right. was so that was. What was the thought? I wasn't given. A, I that. wasn't given a choice. I mean, we we brainstormed a whole bunch of names, and it was like we could we could revive we could buy and revive something defunct. We could come up with some, you know, weird alphabets that are Googleable. And at the end of the day, you need something that's. I don't want to say has a story, but has a reason behind it, right? Mm -hmm. And my investors basically said, you should take responsibility for your children. And that was kind of it. <laughs> um, and it, it turned out that, uh, you know, it turned out that we could get the domain names and the trademarks and all that kind of stuff. So I suppose it was a, it was a happy accident in that sense. Um, but you must have thought about it at the very start, right? Of putting your own name on. It must have, I mean, it can't be like, I, I mean, there's very stuff for designing stuff. Yeah, sure. You put your name on it. But yeah. when you go to commercialize it, you realize that maybe it's not yeah. the best thing necessarily because yeah. it, it means that it's inextricably tied to one person. And, and that one person kind of has to be all and end all and the personality is part of the brand. And even the whole concept of brand is a very sort of nebulous thing, right? It's what do you associate with that name, watch thing? You know, what kind of experience do you associate it? What kind of image do you associate with it? Um, and I think... If it takes on the name of the founder, then it's very difficult to de decouple that from the yeah. founder's personality, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not trying to create a brand that's that's going to live and die with me. It's got to be bigger than that, and or that has to have more longevity than that. Certainly, from a customer's mm -hmm. point of view, it's not just uh, it's a design nice. Do I like it? But it's a whole, you know, what happens in ten years, in twenty years? You know, is there going to be support? Is there going to be? Uh, is there going to be an organization behind it? I, I think that's that's also kind of important, right? The, the the sort of solidity of it. I know for want of a better word, the, what's the solidity behind the brand? Um, mm. Is there a, do I have confidence that they're, they're still going to be around and still making stuff and, and still supporting the old, the old, um, the old products? And, you know, this is one of the things we, we've been through in the last few years. It's not so much succession planning. It's like trying to figure out how the bigger organization works because we grew quite quickly. And yeah. it's always been, it's been bootstrapping along the way. So we, if it needs to be done, one of us just does it and finds a way to make it work. And, you know, last year we brought on, um, head of customer experience. Um, my COO and one of my co-founders, Praneeth became CEO. I stepped mm -hmm. back from the operational role to focus on the design stuff. Um, even the customer facing stuff. Now I'm, I'm, I'm pulling back from that as well because each role has grown to the point where it needs one, sometimes more than one person, you know, even, um, even the even the customer service side. So we we added another person uh, this year. Uh, he used to work with FP John in New York. Um, we have added uh, a Swiss team. So one of the things we're working on is actually building our own Swiss facility. Um, so it, it's it's like how do we how do we grow this to be a, a proper sustainable entity, right? And I, I think we're we're at the point where now it's it's taking on um, it's taking on a different a different phase in the business. I want to say. Okay, I want to talk about legacy and heritage. So in we don't have any. I think, yeah, I know that's why. Because like, I think out of all the articles and interviews I read, I think the one that you wrote yourself for SJX, like in 2019, was like the best in terms of summarizing everything about how you want to run this business, your design philosophy, and everything. 
And there was this quote that you said, like, you know, we have no heritage and you just design as you go. But that was in 2019. Yeah, we still don't. I mean, I I think I think that's that's part of the naming question as well, because taking on a name implies certain expectations. Right. If we took on an old Swiss brand, then people would go, well, we expect a certain kind of thing from that. Um, or we'd have all the designs to to resuscitate. I mean, on one hand, okay, we don't have the back catalog, we don't have the heritage, we don't have any of that stuff. But uh-huh. the flip side is we're not constrained by any of it, so we can make things that that make sense to us. We can we can make things that we like. You know, we can. I want to say that we can we can feel free to explore without without having to be afraid of um, mm-hmm. of what it might mean, right? And I think that's a good thing, especially for a brand that is new, is not trying to be something that's existed before. I mean, we we don't make any secret of the fact that we're an Asian brand. Um, we don't make any secret of the fact that, you know, we don't have any heritage. And, you know, honestly, I think by the time we release the first things that that we'll um we'll be seeing overseeing and producing ourselves, uh, we won't even put Swiss made on the watches anymore because legally, even though we're now at the point where we're going to have our own facility in Switzerland. Yeah. We can't actually put Swiss made on them because the design and construction work, uh, which is previously outsourced. Um, mm. Sorry. The design work was not the translation to construction was outsourced. So because the construction okay. was outsourced uh, yeah. and that was done in Switzerland, that's okay. But now yeah. that I'm doing the construction, you can't. So, so is it going to become made in Malaysia? No, it's not made in Malaysia. It's still made in Switzerland. In fact, if anything, okay. it's more made in Switzerland because we now control okay. the process and we we have a we will have our own assembly facility. Okay. Can you, can you write like made in made in made in Switzerland, but we're not allowed to officially write that or some joke or something? You know, like it doesn't fit on the case back. <laughs> yeah, like, I tried. Uh... <laughs> no, but yeah. it's like putting it's like putting like, like, like two fingers on or one finger up. Yeah, one finger up. <laughs> Swiss, you know, because this is like legislation rubbish, isn't it? I mean, that's not that's not the intention. The intention is that we wanted to take more control of the production process, bring the lead times down, um, you know, have have a little bit more flexibility when it comes to to direct interaction with with our suppliers, and you know, part of the consequence of the process. That's it. But the reality is, the infrastructure, the industry, everything's still in Switzerland. Movement's still Swiss. You know, key mm-hmm. supplies still Swiss. This, this, it's not that's not going to change because the ecosystem is all there. We're never going to make anything in Malaysia. How many? We don't have an ecosystem here. How many watches are you actually producing a year? What's five to six thousand. Five to six thousand. Oh wow! Okay, that's yeah. a lot higher than I actually thought. Right. Earlier, earlier this year, we delivered watch number ten thousand. Um, well, we delivered it to the archive, the company archive. So you know, we we have not historically kept production pieces because we just deliver everything we can deliver. But uh, you know, I think I think now we're going to try and we're going to try and make sure that uh, we have representations in the archive as opposed to sort of non-final prototypes. Okay, I want to ask about um, your design language. So I know there's certain elements that stay consistent. And I mean, you, you can see one and be like, oh, that's a Ming. Um, Actually, it's not elements. Yeah. Principles stay consistent. Yeah. Because okay. if you say a certain physical yeah. element stays consistent, what yeah. you're going to land up with is something where you try and shoehorn, I don't know, a certain line, a certain feature into yeah. a watch that doesn't yeah. work, right? It doesn't make logical yeah. sense. And okay. I we prefer to go according to you know a set of principles where it's something along the lines of uh, there has to be a sense of balance and symmetry. There's got to be legibility. There's got to be visual yeah. layering to it and dynamism. Yeah. So that's that's the whole inflection, reversion, you know, inversion, reflection thing. Um, okay. 
we try to have some axis of symmetry generally uh, because that helps with the visual balance and it helps with aesthetic pleasingness. We try to mm-hmm. make the colors generally quite neutral so that they they are both gender neutral and they work on a wide variety of straps. So yeah. the watch's yeah. personality can can change depending on what you want it to be, basically. Um, we try to design things that are visually dynamic so that you don't get bored of them. I mean, they look different under different light. Yeah. And I think that's kind of yeah. important as well. You don't want to buy a piece and then go, okay, two weeks later, it's kind of boring because it's flat, right? Um, okay. There's, I, I would say there are a few you know to your to your earlier point i think there there are a few um specific visual elements which we which we do mm-hmm. um because they are they are things that don't have a rational or technical reason to be otherwise like for instance the the shape of our lugs right i mean that's yeah. a that's largely a, an aesthetic choice but at the same mm-hmm. time well actually you know what that's not quite true because the shape of the lug was developed from the point that um we needed to make the watches a sensible size that would be wearable for a wide variety of wrists. And mm-hmm. in order to do that, we had those short lugs. But if, if you if the lugs are too short and too thin, they're not visually balanced with the rest of the watch. So okay. the the flare on the lugs is actually to give the lugs a little bit more visual weight so they balance off the rest of the dial and the case. Mm-hmm. And depending on the diameter of the dial, whether we've got a, a big bezel, a concave bezel, convex bezel, um, you know, we'll play with we'll play with the the width and like weight of the lugs to to try and balance that off. Um, I guess the other thing are the indices, you know, they're, they're minimalist, but they're still legible. Uh, you know, we, we try and be generally quite reductivist in, in design and remove, um, let's say non-harmonious elements. Uh, I don't believe in overt branding. So, you know, a lot of the time you're going to find, you're going to play hunt the, hunt the logo on the dial. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. but you're right. I mean, all of those things put together, regardless of what kind of piece it is, Mm -hmm. you look at it and you go, that's still one of ours. And we, we've had people say, like, from across the room, I can tell that's one of yours. That they, even, you know, even on another watch, you can't read the name, even no matter how much text is on the dial. Yeah. Uh, but I guess we have it. We do have a distinct design language in that sense. And mm-hmm. evolving that has been interesting because you yeah. can't change too many things. Yeah. Um, at the same time, if you're, you're always trying to push the, the, the presentation of the watch, you're trying to push the functionality it has, you're trying to yeah. diff- integrate different complications. Um, it's it's been challenging and although you know for how should i say this we kind of went backwards at one point so i designed an end state and then we had to have an intermediate state because i think there'd be too much of a jump between the two even though all of the principles are intact you still need something for people to see the evolution because they don't see the intermediate things that i designed and threw away and didn't and didn't produce right okay uh, I mean, Dan, you go first. I have a follow-up after you. Uh, mine's not a follow-up, yeah. but I was just thinking, like, you mentioned earlier that obviously you had investors, right? And, you know, mm-hmm. you, they said, like, put your name to it kind of thing, you know, because it's yep. your child. So, but at the time, I was thinking, okay, when you're talking to these investors about this Ming watch, right, or this watch project, like, it, it's quite high risk, you know, how what what was your pitch? Like, what did you see in the market where, you know, investors, and then you said it, and then the investors agreed with you, you know, because you're, you're, you're taking a risk, you're non-Swiss, you're making mm-hmm. a watch, which is not exactly uh, really cheap, right? There was no micro. The first ones were. You, you, the first ones were. Yeah, the first ones were. Yeah. yeah. So like, okay, but then that was a different price range. And then you went higher, right? Yep. So what we was did the that so that We did that to, to prevent people from expecting us to just 
we sorry we did that to expect just to stop people from expecting us just to produce the same thing all the time okay that was a deliberate okay, choice but like you, in terms of your business model though they, yep. they must have said like i mean you like if it's that cheap or that price and then you go up to that price was that in the plan to like an investor say like oh that I'm was in the plan yeah that was in the plan so we we oh, actually right, okay. started um we started with a very comprehensive market survey of everything at every price point at that point i mean that was the that was a consultant in me doing his job mm-hmm. um and there was there was the hole i mean that was the hole the micro brand that didn't really you know have the name of micro brand at that point that was the hole so that's what we aimed for um but at Sorry, the same what time the when hole? we started the hole was that price point uh, below what 2000 francs below 2000 francs yeah okay. there was a hole at that point something interesting below 2000 francs that wasn't that wasn't sort of a, a mass market thing um that had a personality and you know that you, you could i guess you could go to one of these one of these collective gatherings and go look i've got something interesting and people go oh, actually that's genuinely interesting and it's it doesn't it doesn't sort of um it, it has it has enough horological meat that people don't go well you know you cut corners here and there right i mean it's one of the reasons why the early models didn't have didn't have open case backs because i to me it didn't make sense to to spend that production budget on superficial decoration you know mm-hmm. i'd rather give you good regulation i'd rather give you good engineering and nice aesthetics and then the other the rest of the stuff comes later so whilst we have gone up in price that's because every time we do we give you a lot more than the price increase would suggest you know every time the production budget increases by at least starting from the low end increases by 20 30 percent there's a lot more things you can do you know and as far as the business model goes it was not a very big amount of money to start off with and we did it on a project basis so everybody was part-time at the start and uh you know we we did what we had to do so i think the the initial the initial investment was half a million francs that was it and um we are we're actually in order to 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 put together the swiss facility this is our first capital raise in eight years so we, oh. we've never raised external funding mm-hmm. um i mean the, the simple argument was basically either we sell everything or we're going to have christmas presents for the next 20 years <laughs> but at the same time we had uh myself and and um magnus bossa who you know we were we were involved in the watch community from the early days of there being an online watch community so we we, we had mm. a lot of friends and we basically called in every favor we could to to try and get some coverage and um i guess i guess that paid off um actually speaking of which the the whole idea of uh, the whole idea of us telling our story, I think you'll see that at the end of the year, we're actually uh, we actually finished a book um, covering everything we've made and and the historical story and and all of the little bits and pieces before. Honestly, before we forget all of it, because uh, we're on we're on reference number fifty seven, fifty eight at this point. It's been it's been five years, six years. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's a there's a lot of water under the bridge that that needed to be recorded somewhere or measured somewhere. Otherwise, it just it's just gonna get forgotten. So, um, yeah, pretty amazing. Are, are you going to write in the book? Are you going to contribute like essays and stuff? I wrote, I wrote the forward, uh, the, the okay. Jack Foster actually wrote a book. Oh, okay. So um, this is going to be quite interesting. And it, we, it was, it was going to be small. Yeah. Um, okay. the, the proof copy, the proof copies arrived uh, a couple of weeks back and, uh, the, I mean, it's all currently in printing at the moment, but, 
I mean, the thing turned out to be a freaking tombstone. It's like two inches thick and it's huge. You know, now we have now we have shipping issues. I think the shipping actually cost more than the book. So when we uh, when we looked for shipping options, it's actually it's actually more expensive yeah. than the printing cost. Okay, I just want to circle back to like um, talking about design and. Uh, yep. You mentioned previously in some of the interviews, like you try to keep the watch very neutral. So like gender neutral, easy to wear with like different types of clothing and so on. Yep. So because of this, you don't exactly have one type of clientele. So you have people that sometimes they come in, they buy entry pieces, some yep. they just go straight for the mono pushers and some that like move up and down, so on, so on. Yep. Um, yep. In that case, are you ever worried that you will one day have so many references that you have just too much, your product range is too wide, and then people start to say, what's going on with this brand? I think that that only happens when there is no common visual link or there's no common link between the products. I mean, we never have so many references in play at the same time uh, that I think there's any risk of that happening, firstly. Secondly, we try to keep, we try to keep the lineage intact in that sense so okay. whether you're looking at um whether you're looking at the at a monopush or an Ajum Ho, i mean the monopush actually is a very good example because previously we had case lines that were sort of segmented by price right we had mm-hmm. the 17s which were you know below two and a half thousand francs we had the the yeah. 18s which is the divers in, in in the three to five range um we had the ultra thin which is around five you know and then we went to the flagship 19s and 20s but what i wanted to do with 37 is try and make a case that would hold at all price points. So our entry level watch is now based on 37 and that's that's what we'll be launching later this week. Um, the flagship monopusher is also a 37. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and later on we'll be having another variant of the monopusher, a small run variant of the monopusher in uh, in our first precious metal case. So, you know, there is a clear link between all of these things. I think it's I think what's important is we 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 leave them um we leave them fairly priced and still representing value. So, just because we're putting, um, a, just because we're putting uh, an entry level movement into a flagship case with a flagship quality dial, doesn't mean that we're going to put it at you know fifty percent of a flagship price. It doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. We we price it where it makes sense to make sense, right? And it's it's going to be more expensive than the seventeen because the dial is more expensive. That's that's just it. Um, okay. But at the same time, on the flagship end, you know, we we're not we're going to use a similar kind of dial construction where we have a sapphire layer over a metal dial, um, you know. But the sapphire layer may have holes in it; it might have markings on many levels. The metal dial might not just be a an a regularly um, normally finished sort of you know anodized spun metal finished metal dial. Uh, you know, it might be a it might be a carved linen thing, right? So there's a, there's a bit of a difference in in how we can apply um let's say those those same principles or guidelines for a certain model line up and down um up and down the price point and i think as we as we continue to evolve we're going to try and keep doing this i mean there are some limitations involved in the sense that if a case is designed for an ultra thin movement i can't go and put a 7750 in there you know or mm-hmm. if a case is designed mm-hmm. for a 7750 i can't go and put a slim movement in there because proportions would be all wrong but okay. where possible i i want to try and keep that continuity now Okay. So, on on one hand, it's like if if you're if you're buying at our entry level, you get to experience something a little bit higher up. 
Um, mm-hmm. But then if you're buying higher up, you don't feel like you're, you're getting an entry level, you know, set of components. It's, it's not, there is, there's a shed aesthetic, but it's not the same watch. Okay. My final question is, um, well, you shared the books coming out. So you have the 37 mm-hmm. being launched. Where do you see this brand in like five years? Where do you want to bring it? You know, if you asked me five years ago, would we be here? I would not have said so. So I, I think honestly, I don't know. I mean, there's okay. there's so many things we have in the works, right? Well, I, I thought we'd never do precious metal cases, but we're, we're doing them. You know, I thought we would never do... Um, I thought we'd never do high complications, but we're, we're sort of, we're, we're starting to do them now. Um, I would have, I would have said pipe dream. We develop our own movements, but that's been in the works for a while now as well. And it turns out it's not as straightforward as, as you think. Mm-hmm. Um, and it probably doesn't help that I keep going, Oh, there's an empty space there. Let's put something else in there. <laughs> and it's, I want to keep it open. You know, I, I, I think we need to be sensitive to, to what the market wants and what the market likes. Uh, mm-hmm. We need to be sensitive to developments in technology and developments in, in you know new movements and and production technology and and even just external inspirations, right? I mean, there's things that I hadn't seen five years ago that now I can I can integrate in a way. Um, mm-hmm. I think even even at a very basic level, up till let's say up till late 2019. Um, everything was actually designed in two dimensions in Photoshop and then given to our production partners to translate, which is one of the reasons why we had that translation done in Switzerland, because Mm -hmm. I couldn't make the three D's right. And end of 2019, I told myself how to use CAD. The first, the first Mm -hmm. thing that we put out, which was done in CAD, but still required a huge amount of translation because I did external form, internal construction and assembly. I, I don't know. I'm just going to give you the aesthetics. At least now I know that in three dimensions, it translates to what I wanted to translate to. I mean, that was, that was the ultra thin. So that was the, the 2701, 2702, mm-hmm. you know, and we've moved on a lot since then. I've, you know, even when it just comes to basic, how do you use CAD, right? That that's, that's been a, it's been a huge evolution between then and now. And there are, there are compound curves and three dimensional forms and things like that, which I couldn't have done even a year ago, which, which mm-hmm. I'm now working on for future releases. Right. And I think even, um, even as we continue to to you know meet new supplies at EPHJ and Fez and things like that, you know we 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 get ideas and every time we push a little bit further, we you know we find supplies from outside the industry and go, well, have you ever made this kind of component before? Mm-hmm. Yes, it's for the watchmaking industry, but fundamentally, it's not that different to something else you're already making. So if we give you the drawings for it, can you make it? Mm-hmm. And you know sometimes it's okay, maybe they can, maybe they can't, maybe the tolerances are not there, maybe it's a refinement of process, or maybe it's it's something else, you know. Um, a good example is, is the, the watch we're launching in New York and we've been talking about this and, and showing teasers and things for, for the last three years, but it's really taken that long to get it to fruition because we will be announcing what is hopefully still at the time, uh, will be the world's lightest mechanical watch. Um, but it's not a silly size. Yeah. It's perfectly legible. You can wear it for whatever you're going to wear it for. Okay. And it's metal. Is a and it doesn't have an exotic movement made of carbon and string. So <laughs> all of those things put together have required a huge amount of, of technical okay. development, right? Okay. Um, you know, we're talking about a watch with a single digit weight. Jeez. All right, I'm excited to see this. Yeah. 
and it's and it's been so long that it had to go through three aesthetic revisions to keep up with our current design language. That's that's how long it is because we tested probably half a dozen different alloys and coating combinations for mm-hmm. you know longevity, corrosion, all that kind of stuff because these are not watch making alloys, right? And biocompatibility, mm-hmm. and all those things. And it's it's been a it's been a long, complicated road. I mean, I, I don't want to see what the total R and D goes. I think it's 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 huge, but mm. you know, it's it's um it's one of those things where. Again, if you ask me a year before we started it, would we yeah. done it? I wouldn't. Have, it wasn't even on the radar. Mm-mm. So, what we're going to be doing five years from now? I don't know. Not sure. I genuinely, yeah. genuinely don't know. I mean, the the one thing I will say is, I think from a from a company and from a structure point of view, I think we will be more mature. Mm. Um, I think there'll be a there'll be a better division of roles because we we grow to the point where it's not possible for one person to do multiple jobs anymore it just isn't i mean yeah. we we have two people who are full-time just shipping and logistics because that's you know it's a it's a big part of what we do mm-hmm. um i mean at the moment i'm still sole creative so i i do all of the design work i do all of the press releases i do <laughs> all of the photography i mean that that's also reaching a point where i i don't have the capacity for that anymore it's just mm-hmm. you know we, we have to we have to find you know we have to find people to grow that's uh that's one of those things all right. Thank you. That was a good first part of an interview. So um, in this next part, um, I just had like too many questions and I've only chosen four. Some are a okay. bit random, but maybe they'll make sense to you. So the first question is, with the huge success, are there challenges in meeting customers' expectations? Of course. Of course. And I, I think one of the one of the biggest challenges we've had is um, with with the rise of, of popularity in watches during the pandemic and, and things got silly towards the end of 21, 22, early mm-hmm. 22, you know, you're looking at pieces sell at really high premiums. Yeah. And that makes me very uncomfortable because we, we price at what I think is fair. It's probably a bit below market. Um, but at the same time, I don't think of, you know, two, three, four, five X premium is right because that sets up a very different expectation for what the watch should be. You know, mm-hmm. if I, I think at the height of craziness, we were seeing 1709s go at 1706s and 1709s, which are, mm-hmm. you know, these are between 1250 and 1900 franc watches. I mean, they, they were going at 15,000 francs up to, which mm-hmm. to me is nuts. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm very flattered and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm really surprised and humbled that we got to that point. But yeah. if you tell me my production budget is for a 15,000 franc retail watch, uh, then you should go and look at the at the 2011 mosaic, which has sapphire mosaic dial. It's got sapphire hands yeah. with ceramic loom set into yeah. the hands. Um, it's got a manufacturer movement in a unique configuration mm-hmm. with with DLC plates and bridges. It's got a um, it's it's got a very complex case construction where we have floating lugs and uh, the movement holder is also the central case ring. Uh, and that's made in titanium, which is guilloshed. Mm-hmm. I mean, things like that, right? I mean, yeah, this is not yeah. this is what my expectation of a watch at that price point should be. Yeah. And I think managing the customer expectations of look, on one hand, we get people going, okay, I'm expecting all of that in an entry level piece. We have people going, can you put a mosaic dial in an entry level piece? And I go, <laughs> ah, the mosaic dial is yeah. two and a half thousand francs. I can't put that yeah. in a one thousand five hundred franc watch. That doesn't work, <laughs> right? And on the other hand, you've got people buying entry level pieces expecting at, at premiums, expecting them to be at that level, which is it's not possible either because yeah. we we don't see that additional budget. 
right? Mm-hmm. But you know, in, in some ways, it pushes us as well because that's why we had the the anniversary mosaic thirty seven oh seven. So we developed a, a way of visually making something that looks like the sapphire mosaic, but it's not. I mean, it was a multi level mm-hmm. printed multi opacity dial with sapphire mm-hmm. and all the kind of things, but it's not lasering thousands of little squares into sapphire, right? It's not the same thing without the same failure rates, without all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it pushes to find a, a visual solution for that. Um, well, I mean, we actually managed to do something with that watch, which, uh, which, which we weren't able to do on the, on the sapphire mosaics because, uh, all of the, the mosaic pattern in the sapphire dial is inside the dial. So we can't add mm-hmm. any material. We can only remove it. Okay. Um, in the entry level mosaics, because it's printed, we actually made the mosaic luminous, which is not something we could have oh. done otherwise. Right. And mm. the, the the release for next week is actually going to be um, a variation on that, where you know we extend the pattern, we extend the sapphire, and it's it's a it's a new it's a new version of the of the mosaic. Um, but I think it keeps us on our toes, that's for sure. I mean, okay. it, it presents it presents challenges. Uh, mm. It keeps us on our toes, but you know, we I I like to think that it results in a more interesting product in the end. Okay, someone wants to know why did the CEO change from you to Paneeth? That's very simple. It's because yeah. there was just so much on my plate that I can't handle all of the the legislative stuff, the compliance stuff, the financial stuff, mm-hmm. um, and part relationship stuff. And then at the same time, you know, design 40, 50 watches a year. It's impossible. <laughs> right. It, it's completely impossible. <laughs> not to mention, <laughs> not to mention we, yeah. we release, um, we release six to eight watches a year, which means going through entire production prototyping process, making production drawings, um, mm-hmm. you know, doing all of the the validation work uh creative photography you know even just removing dust right yeah we uh, there's there's so much work at each level of the process even the photography part let's take that for instance yeah um no matter how much you clean something if you ever try to photograph a watch you know no matter how much you clean something the dust just like comes back right i i now shoot in a room that's yeah. as dust free as possible i mean we run mm-hmm. one micron ppm filters when i'm shooting we use anti-static brushes anti-static coatings all that kind of stuff i've, I've half the dust removal time yeah but one shoot still takes me a week to clean the dust off <laughs> so that's eight weeks a year yeah. i'm sitting in front of my computer with a brush going with it with the with the pen so I can't physically be in Switzerland meeting people and meeting our lawyers yeah. and signing off on budgets and, you know, dealing yeah. with auditors and all that kind of stuff. It's impossible. Yeah. Okay. That's, I mean, that's a simple reason. And, and Praneeth was chief operating officer beforehand. So he was involved <laughs> in all of the running of it. Yeah. it. He was the natural choice to, to succeed me. Okay. The next two are easier. Best burger joint. Oh, that's not easy at all. Oh, really? Which country? I guess Singapore, Malaysia, because this guy is from Singapore. Uh, I can't say I've got a lot of experience eating burgers in Singapore. I mean, in in Malaysia, as a as a sort of go to standard burger, um, Burger Lab's pretty good. Mm-hmm. You know, down the road from the office, so we we know it very well. They deliver at least once a week. Okay, and this one's from Marcos, the Swiss watch gang. He says, "How often do you think about the Roman Empire?" <laughs> No idea what it means. So I hope it rings. Only when I'm reading history books. <laughs> okay. Only when I'm reading history books and going, you know what? Every so often I think, can we put Roman numerals on a dial? I try it and then uh-huh. I, it doesn't work. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so that's about it. Not not very often. 
Okay. We can take a couple okay. more if you if you want. Okay, the getting more and more ridiculous. So I'm gonna like now move on to the final round. So pump push around, short questions, one word answers. Okay. Okay. Your favorite between wine, cigars, cars, photography, and watches. If you had to choose one. Do I have to give up the others? Yeah. <laughs> Gotta be watches, right? I mean, <laughs> it's uh, yeah. It's close. Okay. okay. A job that you would most dislike doing? Oh, that's easy. I did it before. Uh, it's emptying the grease trap at McDonald's. You know when the, when you have to uh, it, like I didn't part of the training. Part of the training. So yeah. I was I was um, director of operations. Part of the training was yeah. you have to go through every role, every job description up to your level, which kind of makes sense because if you're going to yeah. run the thing, you need to understand what everybody does. And I mean, part of that was uh, I saw a lot of things that could be improved and changed, and you know, there's a huge document yeah. that came out at the end of it. And I was, you know, frying fries, flipping burgers, and you know, unloading the frozen truck at three in the morning, and like emptying the grease trap. My God, the grease trap was just oh, it was gross. Can I just say that, that it's yeah. uh, one of my dreams to like work at McDonald's, but I also want to know like. Why is the ice cream machine always broken? It's not really ice cream. Okay, so liquid frozen. It's liquid frozen yeah. dairy derivative something or other that goes in. There's a whole bunch of calibrations required to get it to freeze and set at a certain point. So it can't be liquid, obviously. It can't be totally frozen because it becomes an ice block. And external variations in humidity and temperature, everything basically... Yeah change some of those factors and then you land up with a situation where sometimes it freezes sometimes it doesn't freeze that's basically it my mind is blown <laughs> sorry and there's no there's no clean solution there's no clean solution for that unfortunately <laughs> yeah. they, i know they've tried i was thinking that like out of all this creative design yeah. the only thing i'm going to take away is this grease trap <laughs> and the, like the, why the ice cream of mcdonald's never works <laughs> yeah yeah I thought it was yeah. like a trick so that you have to end up like paying more and then buying McFlurry. No, my no. <laughs> I mean, if, if the if the if the sun if the ice cream machine's yeah. not working, you don't get a McFlurry. You don't get anything because That's it's true. a normal ice cream put in and then whipped. Okay. So if the ice cream machine doesn't work, you don't get a McFlurry. Either. Okay. Um. Next question: A dish that you associate with home. I'm I'm a bit stuck on this one because home is like parental home or like home where I live? Uh, let's do parental home. I think it's it's weirdly enough it's gotta be the, the first thing my mom taught me how to cook, which is this Italian tomato chicken thing. Okay. You know, I haven't had it in a very long time, but it's because I think she just doesn't cook it anymore, but it's it's it reminds me of learning how to cook and yeah, home cooking. Okay. Uh, one memory you still vividly remember from childhood. There was a school I went to in in Australia, so we moved around a bit, lived in Australia for a while, and. The school had some 
land attached to it. It's like basically kind of Australian bush. So, you know, you had mm -hmm. big gum trees and pointy spinifex bushes and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And there were a number of ant nests and, you know, everything in Australia tries to kill you. So the ants are not yeah. like these tiny little black things, right? They're like yeah. one and a half inches long yeah. and they've got jaws you can see. So of course, you know, being primary school kids, we go and put sticks down the ants nest and poke it and <gasps> try and provoke the ants. Yeah. I stopped doing that after I got bitten. Oh my God. Those things hurt. They hurt. Oh you don't forget God. what that feels like. They hurt, you know, yeah. mechanically they hurt. Yeah. And you know, hmm. some of them are poisonous too, and they're like you get this oh huge, God. itchy, painful bite. So yeah, no. So scary just ah. thinking about it. <clears throat> okay, one thing you wish you could have told your sixteen-year-old self. I think eventually, eventually it'll all make a little more sense. I'm not saying it makes sense now but it makes a bit more it'll make a bit more sense because you know when i when i was 16 i was graduating from university starting work and you know trying to grow up all at the same time and trying to make sense of you know what the hell everybody else was doing and i think mm. that was it was not easy mm. um it was not easy at, at so many levels and you know there are times when you just don't know what the hell you're supposed to be doing you know i think at least now i kind of know what i'm doing a little bit more <laughs> okay can, can i just uh elaborate yeah on that, right? yeah because um obviously you know how you grew up right i think it's not maybe the same as the generic kind of guy right or generic person a little different like what 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 like um do you pass down to your kids advice you know how did it change you as a parent i don't i'm assuming you're a parent but like like uh how parenting is one thing i have not figured out i have an eight-year-old i've not yeah. figured it out and, and you know that the whole generational divide that you thought was cliche when you were a kid yeah it's real mm. it's real i mean the only <laughs> thing we the only thing my wife and i do is is we encourage her to make her own choices we've never treated her like a kid so if you ask a question with a difficult answer i will try and i'll try and give you a, an explanation that you can understand but it's not going to be dumbed down it's not going to be a fake answer so we treat her like an adult, good That's or bad, you know. Okay. You guys have Last, kids? Uh, I don't. Dan. Yeah, two. That's two. <laughs> That's why I asked the question. Not easy, yeah. huh? <laughs> well, there's no manual for it. Let's put it that way. Nope. And everyone's different. <laughs> yeah, that's that's that that's kind of like the unique thing, like special thing, you know, that it's, mm -hmm. that it is different. Yeah. All right. Last question. Something you would like to photograph that you haven't yet tried. Oh, photograph a lot of things. I think of, mm -hmm. I can't actually I think, of I think of it. Sorry. Huh? I know what I've I think. I've, I, I think yeah. I've done pretty much everything already at this point. I mean, really? Yeah, we're, there's all sorts of crazy. I mean, in, in the in the eight nine years I was shooting commercially, there's a lot of crazy stuff. I mean, we okay, two memorable, three memorable shoots. I'll give you one was um, I was doing some some landscape work off the coast of Western Australia, um, in a bush plane. A bush plane has no doors, right? So basically, you're you're sitting and you're held in by your seatbelt. You're photographing out of an open plane. Mm. Um, 
and then and then because it's this old ratty thing, the seatbelt came undone. <laughs> so I'm I, and I was leaning out of the window. So I'm I'm, I'm leaning out of the the door opening, right? So I'm I'm glad I had my foot braced on the door. <laughs> Number one. <laughs> Number two, um, we were launching a new camera for House of Lads, so we were shooting the promotional video in Iceland with the Aurora and everything. That was mm -hmm. that was just breathtaking. I mean, mm -hmm. I thought it was a cliche up to that point. That was just blew my mind. Mm -hmm. um, there was another thing I was shooting for Koenigsegg in Sweden. Uh, it was the first mm -hmm. time we had done aerial work. We had a Mm. one of the flagship medium format things strapped to a drone I mean, it's like 50 grand worth of gear strapped to a drone we had light strapped to a drone mm. i mean it was that was cool that was just yeah. cool um i think actually i'm gonna add one more the last thing was yeah. again we we shot another video for the uh, house of blood um i don't know whether you guys are familiar with this this hindu ceremony called typhlosum where basically that you know they put hooks in themselves and oh yeah with the offerings yeah. and they climb the they temple so Singapore, yeah Right. The the one at the Batu Caves in Malaysia is the biggest one in the world. And okay. they get something over the course of two days, three days, they get like half a million mm -hmm. visitors. Most mm -hmm. of them come on the night of the thing. So they they, they will carry the, the main shrine from the yeah. temple in uh, downtown KL to these caves, which are about 13, 14 kilometers away. And mm -hmm. the whole procession follows, right? So basically all the roads are completely blocked. Yeah. It's like, like a yeah. four-lane highway that's just blocked with, with devotees. Yeah, yeah. And then there's... 350 something steps to get to the upper temple ram solid with people uh and, and and it's 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 a wide staircase it's like 50 meters wide and, and mm. so we were shooting in the middle of that i mean that was intense we were shooting video in the middle of that and stills and everything else and the whole experience was yeah. just surreal it was so surreal where can we see this stuff or is it like so this actually this video of this stuff um on my old photography site, the right-hand oh, okay. sidebar has links to the videos. Okay. So I think they, they should still be on Vimeo. You know, let me let me just double check this because yeah. I can't remember whether I paid the subscription or not. It's been a while <laughs> since I've needed to do this. Um, it should all still be up. Yes. Yep, they're all still up. So um, no. we have Dispatches from Land's End, which is the, the Iceland video. Um, above and beyond, that's a Koenigsegg one and Fortitude okay. Resolve, which is type of awesome. So it's it's all there. I can I can send these okay. to you later. Okay, yeah. cool. Well, thank you so much, Ming. I hope you enjoyed Pleasure. that. Yeah, I did. It, it was, was fun chat. So like, not the usual questions, which is good. Yeah, and I mean, like, I could go on and on, like, um, about non-watch related stuff because I just like my mind is my mind is still stuck on the McDonald's thing though, and like. <laughs> Burgers have not gotten yeah. smaller, so that's that's one thing I can confirm. The burgers have not gotten smaller. Was that Big Macs haven't gotten smaller? No, they haven't. They're oh, the same I think they have. No, they're the same I'm weight. Sure they have. They are the same weight. <laughs> uh, maybe I can confirm. Maybe, the same maybe, maybe it's yeah. like the same weight because there's more lettuce and less meat. I don't know. Like no, nope. I think we've um, just gotten larger. Unfortunately, it's like when you're a kid, the Big Mac seems like this uh, indomitable yeah. thing you can't finish. Well, Big Mac isn't. And now, now you're hungry. It's like I need two. It's got to be the double cheeseburger for me. Yeah, I hate the Big Mac. Okay, yeah, well, <laughs> extra layer of bread, just filler. Yeah. Uh, okay, guys, I'm it. sure you all follow. Yeah, <laughs> just ignore us. Um, 
so I'm sure everyone follows the Ming um, page on IG already, but can you do, I mean, please go check out the website because I realized they have a journal section and it's actually kind of interesting to read the, um, the entries there. And as always, you can reach out and find us as in me and Dan on the waiting list podcast page. And we'll see you on the next one. Bye. Bye. Thank you very much. Bye.